Good to see all of you. Thanks for being here at 10 o'clock, and I want to welcome all our folks who are joining us online. What a great, great joy it is to greet you into our service every weekend, wherever you are. Grab a Bible and go with me to the Gospel of Matthew in the seventh chapter, and we're going to continue uh, to work our way verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew in this sermon series called Let's Talk About Jesus. Uh, what a great study this has been so far. We are, we are just one week. Next week, we'll finish the Sermon on the Mount, which means we'll be one-fourth of the way through the Gospel of Matthew. So we got a lot ahead of us still, but it's been a great study so far. I want to say a big thank you to Matt Pineda, our high school pastor, for filling the pulpit for me last week. Did a great job. One of the things that Matt said uh, in his message last week in the beginning was that when we get to this section of Matthew chapter 7 or the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is beginning his conclusion. He's beginning to conclude what has been just an incredible, masterful sermon. And really, he begins the conclusion in verses 13 and 14, where he talks about, or rather, where he gives an invitation to enter through the narrow gate and walk on a narrow road that leads to life, as opposed to a broad gate and a broad road that leads to destruction. And that's what he talked about last week. This week, as we continue to work our way through Jesus' conclusion... He talks about the truth that not only is there a misleading gate and a misleading road, talking about the broad gate and the broad road that he says leads to destruction, there can also be misleading people along the way that can keep us from the kingdom of God. And in particular, he's talking about misleading prophets or people who claim to be spokesmen for God and misleading followers, misleading examples of what a real genuine follower of Christ is looks like, and that's what we're going to talk about here in just a minute. You ever seen one of those pictures that has the caption, one of these things is not like the other? It's a, it's a good teaching tool for children, teaches them observation skills and things like that. Um, let's just let give you a really simple example, okay? So last, for several years, our worship and arts folks have done the music downtown at Circle of Lights. Uh, and the holiday season, and there's Kim Tabor on the left, and that's Phil Powell. I call him Skinny P in the middle, and uh, there's Heidi Wright on the end there. And you could look at that and say, one of these things is not like the other, and you come up with a couple of different answers. There's one boy and two girls, and, and Heidi's all, uh, obviously a lot tougher than the other two. She's not wearing a hat that day, that cold day down in uh, downtown. Okay, that's a simple one. We had our staff together the other day and got a couple more. Okay, so one of these things is not like the other. What do you think it is? Well, one of those people don't need a comb when they get ready for work in the morning. That's Chris Franklin, our children's pastor, who, by the way, I think is the world's greatest children's pastor, hands down, no question. It's not even close. I really love this next one, okay? One of these things is not like the other. <laughs> when I first saw that picture, I didn't even notice Amy in the picture. She's so short. So, so this is Amy with them there. She works in our children's staff also. And you can see these, well, she's surrounded by a bunch of beasts, basically, is what that is. And then here's just one more real quickly. One of these things is not like the other. We had a women's conference earlier in the year, and we were trying to advertise it through these shirts. And, and so that's Rick McLeish in the middle there, and he is our adult sports director across the street. CLC does a great job. And so uh, that's the beauties and the beast right there. So one of these things is not like the other. Well, here, here's the deal. I, I did that for a couple of different reasons. First of all, those pictures. First of all, this is essentially what Jesus is talking about in a very real way. As he, we get to this section of the Sermon on the Mount, we talked about false prophets and false followers. Now, I, I could probably put up 
pictures of, of some guys that I know who for years have been faithful, devoted, God-honoring spokesmen, true to God's word, and in the middle of them put up somebody that I think is a modern-day false prophet, and there's no shortage of those guys in the world today, and say one of these things is not like the other. I could put up pictures of believers. This would be, I would not do this because it would come across so harsh and judgmental, but you could put up pictures of, of, of obedient, faithful, again, God-honoring followers of Christ. You can see the reality of a changed life in them every single day and put up somebody who just has made some kind of profession, just makes a profession that's not evidenced by any fruit in their life and say one of these things is not like the other. And that's essentially what Jesus is talking about here. The other reason why I put those pictures up there is because, to be real honest with you, I wanted to be lighthearted with you this morning at least for a moment because there is nothing lighthearted about what we're going to talk about today. Nothing. This is a very serious and sobering passage of Scripture that is harsh and strong but needs to be understood, and it's not lighthearted at all. So having said that, if you've got your Bible open to Matthew chapter 7, I'm going to invite you to stand with me, and we're going to look at these words and spend a little bit of time talking about them today. You follow along as I read Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 23. Jesus says, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. The people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. All right, you can be seated. And we always ask God's blessing on the reading and the hearing of his word. Jesus' words here are very straightforward and very simple. And so we're going to look at them from a very straightforward and simple perspective. If you like to take notes when we go through this time of study, then write down next to number one, just write down the words false prophets, because that's where Jesus begins. He talks about false prophets. In the original language of the New Testament, which is the Greek language, the word false prophets come from a single Greek word, and the word is pseudoprophetes, pseudoprophetes. The word prophet is the word prophetes, and I'm sure we recognize the word pseudo. It literally means pretending or sham. It means exactly what it's rendered or how it's rendered here in my NIV Bible. It means false. A prophet, a prophetes, the simplest explanation was he was God's spokesman. He was a spokesman for God. He was the man of God bearing the message of God. A pseudo prophetes, a false prophet, was a fake. He was a fake. He was just a pretender. But it's really more than that, friends. A false prophet is not just someone pretending to be something he's not, because sometimes pretending can be harmless. A false prophet is dangerous because he claims to speak for God, and then he misleads people by perverting the truth of God and perverting their thinking and poisoning their souls. And false prophets come in many shapes and many different sizes. The people who were listening to Jesus speak that day and heard him talk about false prophets would have known exactly what he was talking about. 
because there are false prophets found all throughout the Old Testament, for example. We don't have time to look at it in detail, but let me just tell you this. In the book of Deuteronomy, don't turn there, but in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, we see that the reality of false prophets was so prevalent that God, through Moses, gave his people specific instructions about how to deal with false prophets, and the instructions are sharp, and they're sobering, and they're harsh. The book of Deuteronomy, by the way, if you don't know, is a record of all the last things that Moses said to his people before they entered into the promised land. And so it's very serious. I mean, think about that. If you knew that you were about to die and you had one last chance to pass on the, your depth of knowledge and, and the things that mattered the most to you to the people that you love the most, wouldn't that be a serious conversation? And that's what the book of Deuteronomy is. And so all through the book of Deuteronomy, we see this warning from Moses to his people to be obedient to God and to avoid, at all costs, avoid idolatry. And as a part of that, he tells them how to deal with false prophets. But it wasn't just the Old Testament. We see the reality of false prophets in the New Testament as well. When we get deeper into our Matthew study, when we get to Matthew chapter 24, we're going to see in Matthew 24 and verse 24, one day Jesus says these words to his disciples. He says, for false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect. Even people who are saved could be deceived by these false prophets. When you get deeper into the New Testament, past the Gospels, and you see the beginning of the church and how the church began to spread, one of the most common things you see in the New Testament epistles that were written to the churches about the churches is warning after warning against false prophets, false teachers who infiltrate the church and destroy churches, divide and destroy churches, and turn people away from God. One of my favorite passages in the book of Acts is found in Acts chapter 20. It's a very emotional passage of Scripture toward the end of the chapter where Paul is saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders, men that he had served with in the church in Ephesus for three years. He'd poured his life and his heart into these people. He'd discipled them and trained them and led alongside of them. But now he's saying goodbye to them, and he knows he's probably never, ever going to see them again. And listen to what he says to them beginning in Acts chapter 20, verse 29. He says, I know that after I leave, notice how he describes these guys, savage wolves, will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day, he says, with tears. False prophets have been around for a long time. And false prophets are around today. I hope you know that. In fact, there may be more false prophets today at work in the church of Jesus Christ than ever before in any time in history. There's a guy whose blog I read from time to time. His name is Tim Challies. I don't agree with everything that he has to say, but I find his blogs interesting and thought-provoking, and I especially like to read what he writes in terms of book reviews because a new book will come out, and I have to decide whether I want to read that or not, and I'll oftentimes look to see if he's reviewed the book. I ran across a blog he wrote a while back where he identifies seven types of false teachers in the church today. Obviously, I won't have time to talk about each one of them in detail, but I'm going to mention all seven of them. First of all, he says there's the heretic. You should write this down. He says there's the heretic. And he says the heretic is probably the most prominent false prophet or false teacher today because he is someone who blatantly contradicts the essential teachings of the Bible and the essential teachings of the Christian faith. He does that by contradicting the truth of God's word by adding to it. And he does that by 
contradicting the truth of God's word by denying certain parts of it. Somebody will come along and deny the virgin birth or deny the resurrection or deny the doctrine of the Trinity. Someone will come along who, like Jehovah's Witnesses, alters God's word and changes it to suit what they want it to say. Or like Mormons who come along and add to the word of God and claim to have some extra new revelation. The bottom line is a heretic is someone who is always tampering with the truth of the scriptures. I've seen this happen in my life in ministry over and over again. Probably most recent, the thing that comes to my mind is when this whole issue of same-sex attraction and same-sex marriage and transgender issue became such a big social issue, there were those in the Christian community and the pseudo-Christian community who would come along and take passages of Scripture that have always been understood and interpreted one way in the past and say, you know what, they don't mean what we always thought they meant. They mean something different and new, and they have a revisionist approach to those passages of Scripture to try to justify their beliefs. The second kind of prophet or false prophet he mentions is the charlatan. That's not a word that we use very often, but we're just talking about a con artist here. A charlatan is a person who uses Christianity as a means of personal enrichment. A charlatan is someone who is only interested in the Christian faith to the extent that it can somehow benefit them. And one of the most common characteristics of charlatans in the Christian world today is they embrace and they preach and teach a prosperity gospel where they give promises to people that are really not based on the absolute truth of God's word. You can see a televangelist saying, you send me $100, sow $100, sow a seed of $100 into my ministry and God will give you back $1,000. Sow $1,000, sow a seed of $1,000 in my ministry and God will give you back $10,000. Now listen to me. There's nobody who believes in the importance of giving and generosity more than I do. And I could spend all my time up here giving you testimonies about how God has blessed Sandy and I and our family as a result of our willingness to be generous in the past, but God never promises, never promises absolutely that if you give, he's going to give back to you in a monetary form. Now, God blesses us when we're generous, and God provides for us when we're generous, but how many of you know that oftentimes God's blessing comes in better forms than just more money in your pocket? Then he says, number three, there's just the prophet I told you the word prophet primarily means spokesman. A prophet is God's spokesman. It's the man of God bearing a message of God. But it's clear in the scriptures that there was at times an element of a prophet who was able to verbally predict the future. There's an element of prophecy that way. That's not the most common use of the word prophet. But today there are false teachers and false prophets who claim to have a new revelation from God beyond what's already been revealed in the scriptures. And oftentimes the new revelation they claim to have contradicts what's already revealed in the scriptures. And that's an incredibly dangerous thing. I hope we all know that. This is why John gave this warning. Write this reference down in your notes, 1 John 4, 1. He gave this warning. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is another reason why it's so important for you and me as Christians to know, to really know the truth of God's word. Because if you don't know the truth, you can't recognize a lie when it comes along. And it's amazing to me how many Christians who have spent their entire lives in church don't really know the truth of God's word. They've heard it, but they don't know it. And so they are deceived by lies that come along. A great example of this would be a man named Joseph Smith, who in the 19th century claimed to have received the Book of Mormon from the angel Moroni. And as a result, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people have been deceived with a false doctrine ever since. Number four, he says there's the abuser. 
And the abuser is simply a false prophet or a false teacher who uses his position of authority and leadership to take advantage of people. And it takes advantage of people by, by using them to feed his own personal lust. It can be a lust for power. It can be a lust for money. It can be a physical, passionate lust. But there are people who, in the name of being spokesmen for God, abuse people. Number five, there's the divider. The divider is someone who uses false doctrine or twisted doctrine to disrupt and destroy a church. This is a kind of person who's focused on one thing, and that's creating uh, division and, and, and divisiveness in the local church. I've seen this happen. I've seen people infiltrate the local church before and then work behind the scenes to undermine the spiritual leadership of the church, whether it's the pastor or the elders, and they twist doctrines or they take minor doctrines and make them into major things or they take major doctrines and they try to make them into minor things. And all the while they're saying, all I care about is everybody's best interest, but destruction is what they leave in their path. And then one of the most dangerous to me, number six, is the false prophet that Tim Challies identifies simply as the tickler. He's the false teacher and the false prophet who's only concerned about what man wants, not what God wants. He's a man pleaser, not a God pleaser. He's exactly who the apostle Paul wrote about when he wrote these words to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.3. Listen close. He says, for the time will come when men will, put, will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And I want you to listen to me really close, friends. These guys, these people are are all around us. They're on television every week. They appear on TV talk shows. You can see them on Oprah. They sell millions of books. They are incredibly popular. They don't just draw thousands of people. They draw tens of thousands of people to their churches and to their speaking tours as they sell out arenas all around the country. And tens of thousands of people will flock to listen to them because their message is an inch deep. And it's a Reader's Digest convinced, condensed, feel good about yourself gospel that doesn't deal with the reality of sin and the need for repentance in all of our lives. They don't talk about repentance because they won't even mention the word sin. Then there's the speculator, finally, number seven. That's someone who's just obsessed with novelty and originality and a new way to do things. But oftentimes, the new way to do things are contrary to some of the most fundamental truths of God's word. The bottom line is there have always been and there always will be false prophets. And Jesus tells us two very important things about false prophets in our text. Number one, write this down. He tells us that they're deceptive. Look back at verse 15. He says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. In other words, they look good on the outside. They don't just look good on the outside. They look harmless on the outside. They look compelling on the outside. But on the inside, they're ferocious wolves. They want to destroy your life. That's the thing about false prophets. That's the thing about, thing about Satan himself, who the Bible describes as someone who masquerades as an angel of light. You want to deceive somebody, then you are deceptive in your appearance. You know, if you go out to lunch after church is over today, and you try to pay for your meal with a $20 bill, or a $50 bill, or a $100 bill, then chances are your server's going to take that, and they're going to Make sure it's going to look good, it's going to feel right, but they're going to hold it up to the light and look for that watermark. They're going to take the little magic marker and make the mark on it to make sure that it's authentic because it might look right, but they want to make sure that it's the real deal. Now, if you went out and you gave your server a $100 bill that had your favorite picture of your wife in the middle of it where the president should be, well, they're going to know right away, right? And so that would be foolish. 
That's why Jesus says they're deceptive. They look like sheep, but inside they're ferocious wolves. The second thing he says about them is that not only are they deceptive, but number two, he says they are discernible. It might require a little bit of work on your part, but they are discernible. You can tell whether or not they're false prophets. And that takes us back to verses 16 through 20, which is such a significant part of this text. He says, remember what he says? He says, uh, by their fruit, you will recognize them. The people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from, brist- from thistles. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Look up here. Two times, two times in those verses, Jesus says, by their fruit, you will recognize them. They are discernible, but you've got to look close. You've got to pay attention. Let me just tell you in real simple terms. I think when it comes to somebody who presents themselves to be God's spokesman and you're uncertain, you just ask three questions. In fact, you could probably just ask just any one of these three questions to determine whether or not they're the real deal. The first one is this. Ask this question. What do they say about Jesus? What do they say about Jesus? And what I mean by that is who did they say Jesus is? You know, from time to time when I'm sitting in my home on Saturday and the doorbell rings, Uh, I know probably most of the time that it's going to be somebody who's going to be coming and trying to sell a new gospel to me, a new new belief system to me. And so if I answer the door, a lot of times I don't even answer the door, but if I answer the door and they give me their spill, then a lot of times I'll just look at them and I'll say, well, I got one question for you, and I'll ask them this question. Do you believe that Jesus Christ was God in human flesh? That's it. That's all you got to do. Do you believe that Jesus Christ was God in human flesh? You can say it like this. Do you believe that Jesus was the divine Son of God? And let me tell you something. If they say no or they try to give you some kind of a compromised answer, then shut the door because you know exactly who you're dealing with. Anybody who doesn't believe that Jesus was God is not somebody who is the real deal. They're selling you a false gospel. They've got a false presentation that they're trying to make to you because this is one of the most fundamental, immutable truths of the Bible but some th- somehow, false prophets and false religions, they, they focus their attention on Jesus and they deny the reality of who the Bible says that he is. The second question you can ask somebody is, what do they say about the gospel? What do you say about the gospel? And what I mean by that is this. The Bible makes it clear that the gospel message is this. You and I are sinners, all of us. We may be the best, most moral, upright people in the world. We may have tons and tons of great qualities, but the one thing we all share in common is none of us are perfect. We've all sinned. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That sin separates us from God because a holy God can't live in fellowship with a sinful man. But God loves us so much, he didn't want that separation. So what he did was he sent his son, Jesus Christ, down into the world to die on the cross in our place as a substitute. And when Jesus was on the cross, he was punished for your sin and mine. God satisfied his need for justice through the death of Jesus on the cross. And now the only way that we can have our sin forgiven is by putting our faith and trust in Jesus and what he did on the cross. You are saved because of the substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross, not a single thing that we do. That's the gospel message right there. And if somebody tries to tell you anything different, then you shake the dust off your feet and you walk away because you're not dealing with somebody who's the real deal. The third question you can ask to try to determine whether or not somebody is a genuine spokesman is this. What kind of character does he or does she exhibit? And this goes back to what Jesus said two different times. He said, by, your, by their fruit, you will know them. By their fruit. Listen to me. There have been false prophets around for a long time, and there are false prophets around today. And they are compelling, oftentimes compelling, and they draw you in, but their message 
is a message that's designed to destroy your soul. Don't be deceived. Then Jesus turns his attention not uh, from false prophets and begins to talk about false followers. So write down next to number two, false followers. And these are some serious and sober words. He says, beginning in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Now, I want everybody to look up here at me and listen to me close. These are some of the most frightening words in all the Bible. And the reason why I say that is because Jesus is not speaking these words to irreligious people. He's not speaking to agnostics. He's not speaking to atheists. He's not speaking to unbelievers. He's not speaking to heretics. He is speaking to religious people. He is speaking to people who are devotedly religious. The problem is they've been deceived into believing that they have entered in through the narrow gate and they are walking on the narrow road that leads to life when just the opposite is true. They are... There are people who have walked through a broad gate or are walking a broad road that leads to destruction. They're deceived into believing that they're right with God because they follow religious rules and because they're involved in doing religious things, sometimes even spectacular religious things. Jesus, Jesus talked about driving out demons and performing many miracles. The frightening part of this is this represents lots of people who consider themselves to be Christians today. And I know that sounds harsh and judgmental, but I want you just to stay with me. You, you know that. You know me. You know that's not what's in my heart. I want you to stay with me. I'm just trying to be clear. I read an ABC News belief poll this week that said 83% of Americans identify themselves as Christians. Now listen to me. Think about this with me. If that were true, if 83% of Americans were true Christians... Don't you think America would be a completely different country than it is today? And don't you think we would be a completely different people than we are today? And don't even think for a minute about calling me judgmental by saying that because that's not being judgmental. That's just using common sense. And that's using common sense based on how the Bible describes a true follower of Christ. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And that doesn't represent 83% of the people who live in the United States of America. And so the question is, how does this happen? How is it that so many people identify as Christians when there's no fruit of Christianity, no evidence of the fruit of Christianity in their life? Well, there are a number of different things that cause that. There's a false or an incomplete assurance a lot of people have been told that they're Christians just because they were raised in a Christian family. They didn't, it didn't mean anything to them personally. It's just the heritage of their family or because they're connected to a specific church or because they went through some kind of a class when they were a child. Some people have been told that they're Christians because they raised a hand or they walked an aisle or they just, they just verbally repeated the words of a prayer that somebody told them to repeat. But there was no mention of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. There was no mention of the recognition of sin. There was no mention of the need for repentance or anything like that. There was never a complete presentation of the gospel message. Following Jesus isn't like joining a club 
It's the surrender of your life that's depicted in the scriptures as dying to yourself daily. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, dying to yourself daily. That's what it means when he says to take up your cross daily and follow me. Jesus' listeners would have known exactly what he meant when he said take up your cross. He was saying you've got to die to yourself daily. That's what the Bible says. The second thing I wrote down here was a faulty understanding or explanation of God's grace. Listen to me really close. God's grace is the greatest thing in the world. You know what God's grace is? God's gra- gr- the word grace, God's, it, it, it comes from a Greek word that means gift. And when we talk about God's grace, we're talking about a free gift that God gives us, God's unmerited favor that he gives us, that you know what? You and I never will ever deserve, and we could never earn no matter what we do. We'll never deserve it. We can never earn it no matter what we do. That's, that, and that's why when Paul says in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, uh, for, for you've been saved by grace through faith, grace through faith, the forgiveness of our sin, the opportunity to be right with God, that's a gift that God gives to us as a result of our faith that we could never earn and never deserve. But listen to me close. Grace is something that's received. It is not something that's presumed upon. You know what I mean? Grace is something that we receive, not something we presume upon. And so here's what I'm telling you. You can't live in open, willful, blatant, disobedient sin and then claim that your life is right with God because those two things are counter to each other. When we receive God's grace, it changes our lives. That doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. That doesn't mean we're never going to make a mistake. Jesus said every good tree, uh, that a good tree can't bear bad fruit and a bad tree can't bear good fruit. But every now and then a good tree might produce, a good apple tree might produce a bad apple, one bad apple or a couple. You know, sometimes we make mistakes. It doesn't mean that we're perfect. But you can't live in open, willful disobedience to the word and the will of God and then claim that you're covered by grace. Because grace manifests itself in the fruit of obedience. And so many people are deceived this way. The third thing I put down here was an inordinate focus on religious activity. Going through the motions of religious activity can sometimes make you think you're a Christian. But what we've seen over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus saying, what I care about is the heart. He, he's, not, he's obviously not, folk, he's not concerned about profession or even actions based on what he says in verses 21 through 23. What he can concerned about is the motivation and the purity of your heart, the sincerity of your heart. It's not external things. It's what's happening on the inside. And then number four, I wrote down a works-oriented approach to salvation. Some people think that even though, you know, that you live in disobedience to the Word of God or the will of God, there's oftentimes still enough good things going on in your life to counter counter the bad things. Everybody look up here. That is not how it works. That's never been how it works. That's never how it will never be how it works. That's not how it works. So listen to these words again. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Jesus says that to be right with God, to enter into the kingdom of heaven, is all about doing the will of his Father who is in heaven. That means the issue for us beyond faith is obedience to the will of God. 
Now, this is something the New Testament teaches us over and over again. The New Testament, write this down in your notes. The New Testament teaches us that saving faith and obedience to the will of God are inseparable. And that's not me teaching that you're saved by works because I don't believe that. That's just me telling you with clarity what the Bible says. Let me show you an example from Hebrews chapter 5. Look at these words on the screen. In verses 8 and 9, the Hebrew writer, and he's talking about Jesus here, by the way, says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who, read the last two words with me, obey him. He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Being right with God is more than just the words that we speak, and it's even more than the things that we do oftentimes. Being right with God starts in your heart when you surrender your heart, which means you surrender your will, the deepest part of who you are, in obedience to God. This is what the Bible teaches us. You surrender your heart in a way that changes your life. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close, and it's going to seem maybe like a little bit like an abrupt ending, but I'm going to do this deliberately. Tyson's going to come, and we're going to close. And I'm going to close this by asking you a single question today, and it is not one to be taken lightly. It is one that we need to be thoughtful about. And our answer can either give us assurance or our answer can make us be very concerned. Here's the question. And we'll just, I'll just phrase it in the first person because I'm asking it to myself first. Did my decision for Christ change my life? Did my decision for Christ, whenever that was for you as a child, later in life as an adult, maybe it's been recent for you, did my decision for Christ change my life? If the answer is no, then there's genuine cause for concern. I want you to bow and pray with me. Father in heaven, thanks so much for a chance to talk about these things.